0: You're listening to "Confronting Christianity," a podcast of Training the Church.
1: So, so she is deep into Hamilton's life.
0: How old is and she? At,
1: she just turned twelve.
0: And she read the she read the Ron Chernow eight hundred page biography on Hamilton. She indeed, indeed, she oh was
1: totally gosh. into it
0: christians do this all the time with the parts of the gospel that co- that are congruent with what we want to think about ourselves <laughs> uh, and then we leave on the table the stuff that's a little bit more like sandpaper
1: the the more you sit down and actually read the gospel accounts of jesus life the more compelling he's going to be
0: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Rebecca McLaughlin. How are you, Rebecca?
1: I am hot. <laughs> in a, I mean, in the in the like, <laughs> that came out so wrong.
0: Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's try. Well, Engineer Brad, uh, just uh you can just clean that up. Maybe put an applause break behind it or something. <laughs> um uh, you mean you mean you're physic you're physically I, warm.
1: I, I had to break mm. into our associate pastor's office today because my internet was down at home. And mm. if I put the air conditioner on. I think it'll be really noisy, so I'm just sweltering. Maybe that's the word that I was looking for.
0: I, you know what? We're gonna stick with sweltering on this. And okay. I was—I'll tell you—I was sweating. Uh, looking, you posted a picture on Twitter of that looked like a like a torture trap. It looked oh my goodness terrifying to me. It was like this, like it looked like a skyscraper that then had like a swing on it. And you said you did this with your daughter, and it like I showed it to my wife, and I was like, this is this is my worst nightmare right here. Being stuck on one of these is my worst.
1: Yeah, nightmare. yeah. Yeah. So, what,
0: what was, how did you get coaxed into that?
1: Gosh, it's a long story. We went to Six Flags New England, which I would not recommend. We had terrible customer service experience, which I'm still like, I still feel the rage
0: from. <laughs> but shots, I'm letting it go. Sh- shot, shots fired. Uh, if there's anybody who works let at Six Flags New England listening, just uh, let it be known you know. that if
1: you have a summer pass, that doesn't mean you have a season pass, even though mm. summer is a season and it is still summer. When, mm. uh, well, as we're, as I'm talking right now, it is anyway.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure and I'm sure an attorney somewhere would disagree with you on uh, mm, how that so. con- how that how the fine print was written. But all right. So you're there, though.
1: So we're there. And my 10 year old wants to go on this absurd thing, which is like a, a massive pole, like a imagine the tallest New York skyscraper. And it's just a pole, except that it has this thing that goes up and down and swings like you, little pairs of swings dangling um, that as they go up, they start spinning. And so not only do you get higher, but you also start to sort of splay out and oh swing around. And my tenure was like, I really want to go on that thing. And we hadn't been able to do the Like there were various things we hadn't been able to do for various reasons. My husband wasn't there. He's usually, he would be the guy to go and do the swing thing. And I thought, you know what? My little girl wants to do this thing. I am quite scared of heights. Me too. So I went with her and I said to her, I'm probably going to have to close my eyes and sing Amazing Grace to make this work. (laughs) But I thought, you know, maybe I like, I thought maybe I'm braver than, than that. Maybe, maybe I am. So we get in these swings and they start to lift up and about 10 feet off the air, I was like, uh, off the ground, I was like, okay, I, I, I think I need to close my eyes right now. And my, my little girl's going, mommy, the view is so great. I'm seeing this, I'm seeing that. And I'm like, keep, keep telling me, but I cannot, I, if I open my eyes. It is all over for me right now. And the only good thing I knew about this ride was that it was a minute and a half long. And I'm like, I can sing and close my eyes for a minute and trust my soul to the Lord. Yeah. That is, that's all that's happening here.
0: Well, uh that's where I would have been too. I've seen a video of somebody on that swing and it was a guy and he's like passed out and his his limbs are just limp as the swing is going around and that would be me. I would open up my <laughs> yeah. eyes. Uh yeah. I I have terrible fear of height and I get terrible motion sickness. So that mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. like going around really fast in a circle really high up out in mm-hmm. like the open air, that is my I'm 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 but I'm like this with all heights. Like I'm a terrible flyer. Like every time I Every time I get on a plane, in my head, I'm thinking, this is defying God. Like, I should not yeah. be. None of us should be up here. <laughs> we were not created to fly. I shouldn't be up here flying. This is an act of defiance against the creator. <laughs> and this doesn't... It's like this the Tower not, of Babel all over again. <laughs> yes, it's like, this does not seem right. And so, to, like, roller coasters have, to me have always felt like just flagrantly looking up at God and being like, you know those limits you put on us? Yeah, we're going to scratch those limits real yeah, quick yeah. and just fling our bodies about on these rickety old roller coasters. I cannot yeah, do it.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. here's, So here's, here's the spiritual thought that I had as I got into mm, that, that yeah. swing. And I know we all need okay. to hear my spiritual thoughts on a random swing in New England. But it's that conflict between what your senses tell you and what your brain tells you. Mm. Because my senses said it is unsafe to be flying or like whizzing around in the air on that spindly little piece of metal. It's just, you may as well die now as go on that thing. But my rational brain said, you know what? This thing has been designed specifically so that people can do it safely. And this whole theme park would have been closed down years ago if that was not in fact safe. Hmm. So I I had this battle between my rational self and my kind of instinctive emotional self, I guess. Um, and, but the only way that I could allow that piece of me that knew this was safe to go ahead and like win the day was by closing my eyes and singing to the Lord. And and in some ways it did, I know this sounds sort of cheesy, but it did feel a bit like a metaphor for the Christian life that there are, Mm. there are so many times when I am closing my eyes and singing to the Lord and clinging on to trust in him. Even when it really, everything within me is crying out something else because, I'm flying around some crazy thing in the sky, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I got to tell you, if I didn't know that you were godlier than I was, I do know now because (laughs) I would not be, I would not be making those connections. I would not have roller coaster reflections with Rebecca going on in my head (laughs) while I'd be like, this was a terrible mistake. I'm a good dad. I'm a good dad. I did this to prove to my daughter I'm a good dad. It'd be all selfish. It'd all be like so self-serving. I'd be like wow, I just built a lot of bonus points in with my daughter for that bravery right there. But, you know, not only are you godlier than me, you're more prolific. Rebecca uh, has about 25 books coming out this year. And uh, two of the-
1: You're a liar. That's your main problem, Kyle. (laughs)
0: Hey, hey, listen, if it's not 25, it's, like, within a multiple of that. Like, it's not far away. Uh, I, I don't know. I was telling Rebecca offline, like, I don't know. I feel like all of the British evangelicals I know have just chosen to be, like, incredibly prolific with their life. So they're just pumping stuff out. But two of the books are releasing this year are Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, which is recently released, and Confronting Jesus, which is soon to be released. Let me just say, like, why all this interest in Jesus? Is that <laughs> what's, the, what's the big deal About Jesus Rebecca
1: Yeah yeah um, Here's the thing I I write because I really love writing And I know that's like a nerdy Sort of mm. weird thing to, to say But it's true Like some people like woodwork And some people like you know Sculpting from clay And I just I really It turns out like deeply Find writing to be Emotionally satisfying for me mm. um, So I, I, I know I want to be writing and the the books that i've written prior to this little spate of writing books focused on jesus or with jesus in the title um those have been books that were more apologetics focused focused in the sense of sort of taking an issue thinking through it connecting it to the scriptures and i wanted to spend more time actually just in the scriptures Mm -hmm. and putting that foot first rather than the the sort of Questions and issues first. So, yep. in some ways, it's just been selfish. It's been an excuse for me to spend more time in the Gospels, particularly
0: yep. um,
1: educating myself more, uh, learning more of of the Lord there. And it's just been, yeah, super satisfying for me, kind of emotionally and and spiritually, just to to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and confronting Jesus in particular, I I wanted to write as sort of like a follow up to confronting Christianity, which. My hope with that first bit was to say, you know, think of your most skeptical friend who has all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't be interested in Christianity. Like maybe this book can help um, address some of those issues. Confronting Jesus is more like, okay, if somebody's read that book or somebody's ready to to seriously consider Jesus, but maybe not quite ready to pick up the Bible for themselves and just start reading, that this book would be a little bit of a bridge to help them get oriented with what the Gospels are, why we should see them as reliable. And then, what do we learn about Jesus in the Gospels? So, kind of like a gateway drug to people reading the Gospels.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, let me just, let me ask you this. Well, just to get the conversation going what if we're wrong about Jesus? Like, what if we're, what if, what if you and I are wrong about who we believe Jesus is mm-hmm. and what we believe Jesus has done? Mm, mm. Because there are objections, right? I mean, they're yeah. like, not everybody in the world. Sees Jesus differently, or G- sees Jesus the same way. So, let's just start there. What What are some of the common objections about Jesus? Just to get them on the table to kind of know who we're talking to yeah, uh,
1: yeah. and
0: who we're talking with. What are some of the common objections? You can throw out a couple. I'll throw out a couple.
1: Yeah. So, I think some people would say, you know, Jesus was clearly a great, incredible ethical teacher. You know, no question, his teachings changed the course of ethical moral history. And so, and he was, you know, somebody like Richard Dawkins, the new atheist um, folks would say, he was very much behind, sorry, ahead of his time in terms of his ethics. Right. But the idea that he is God in the flesh—that he is in fact so much more than a good teacher, but identifies as the creator of of the universe and of of you and me—and that he has some, um, you know, fundamental role to play in our our ultimate spiritual destiny—that that that is a an exaggeration that's accrued around Jesus since the time that he was preaching and that Jesus himself would never have said. You know, people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God in the gospel. So I think that'd be one, that that gap between Jesus, the great moral teacher and Jesus, the son of
0: God. That certainly seems like the one that has the most popular cachet. Like very Mm -hmm. rarely do you meet somebody, at least in the global West, do you meet somebody who just is like, absolutely despising that model of Jesus, where they're like, Mm -hmm. they won't acknowledge its historicity. That's very rare. There are some who object to the historicity of Christ. They would say the whole notion of a literal person who was Jesus Christ, moral teacher, God, or whatever, that that's historically inaccurate. That's less in vogue. It's a minority opinion. What is a lot more in vogue and popular is, yeah, Jesus was a good guy. He was a good teacher. Uh, I like Jesus, but, you know, his followers are a problem. You know, he he really wasn't God in the flesh. And there's kind of sometimes rational objections to that. Like, I could not possibly believe that Jesus was God in the flesh because it would presume that there's, you know, a God who is above nature, supernatural, immaterial, and that he would be able to take on flesh. So that's kind of more of like a rational objection. There's kind of moral objections to it, which is that, you know, I, I don't believe Jesus is Lord because it would be a totalizing claim. And that kind yeah, of claim yeah. would, would submit other people who don't believe in the the exclusivity of Christ, that he is not just God, he is unique in being the son of God, and the rescuer of the world, that that kind of, that's a moral objection that it feels unpalatable, Mm, mm -hmm. that he would, if he is God, then he must be exclusively so. And if that's the case, that's unpalatable morally because it's not very, uh, it doesn't have the universal in mind. Um,
1: Yeah. And and even doesn't have the, I think there's such a strong emphasis today on people saying, you know, my truth and your truth. Yes. Can both be valid and true, but just different. Right. And that's, on some things that's, that's correct. You know true. your food preferences and my preference. You know I could think that this coffee is better than that coffee, and and you vice versa. And we could both be you know true in our own little worlds. So that's fine. But actually, Jesus is. It's this is not the kind of truth that there could be your truth and my truth. But I think a lot of folks today want to say you know it's it's what if Jesus works for you, that's great. I would be the last person to say that he isn't God. If that's what you know floats your boat, essentially. Right. But the the claim that Jesus is universal Lord of all. Regardless of anyone's, um, you know, religious beliefs, it is uh, that's that's where it, it gets really unpalatable for for folks today. I think.
0: Yeah, and certainly in a globalized world where we're in closer conversation—well, that's probably not accurate. Closer, we're we're more aware. I wouldn't say that we're in closer mm. conversation, but we're more aware of other worldviews and religions. And you know, I think one of the things certainly in the last twenty years, as Islam has become more of a uh, uh, a reality and presence in just people's lived experience in the global West. I mean, just in terms of neighbors who are Muslims uh, or friends who are Muslims, co-workers, employees who come from the Islamic tradition, um, certainly that has become a conversation partner in beliefs about Jesus as well. You can find Isa in the Quran. Quran. You can mm-hmm. find references to Jesus in the Quran. But the understanding, the Muslim understanding of Jesus is not that he was uh, the Son of God, uh, certainly that he was not God in the flesh, but that he was a, a moral teacher and a moral prophet uh, who was submissive to Allah and was there to prophesy really on behalf of Allah, who is in Islam the one one true and one and only God. Certainly mm-hmm. Jewish neighbors and friends and, and Jewish beliefs throughout the, the history uh, of the church and the history of the world have viewed Jesus very differently than mm-hmm. uh, Christians have viewed Jesus. They don't believe uh, Jesus is the revelation or perfect revelation of Yahweh, certainly not uh, God in the flesh, uh, nor would they trust in the historicity of his resurrection or the substitutionary Mm -hmm. reality of his death. So there are a lot of competing beliefs. And I think one of the things when we start to try to, like this podcast is aiming for, faithfully explore hard questions, is to try to represent, this is just a good conversational apologetics, cultural engagement, principle. You want to have the best version of the competing arguments. That's Mm -hmm. what you want to Mm -hmm. treat seriously. And I think a lot of Christians are trained to treat the worst version of competing Mm -hmm. arguments. Uh, And subsequently, when they meet the best versions of them, it strikes them as totally disorienting because they've never really been asked to consider, hey, this is the best version of some of these competing objections. So... Let me just ask you this, going back to where I started. What if we're wrong? Have you ever considered Mm. that? What if if you're wrong? How do you know you're not?
1: Yeah, and I think I would want to segment it according to each of those different dimensions that we were just talking about where people might say that we were wrong wrong about Jesus. That They're they're absolutely interconnected. But, you know, what if I'm wrong about Jesus being fully God and fully man? For instance, like that would be one of the central claims about, about Jesus. And I think there, so as I read the Gospels and, and we're going through Matthew's Gospel and our community group at the moment, so sort of, you know, particularly deep into that Gospel and noticing how time and again, Jesus is saying and doing things that really only God has the right to, to say and do. Um, so if Jesus is not both fully God and, and fully man, then the, the Gospels just can't be authentic testimony about him. Like, actually, I, I think I, I have, I don't have a whole lot of time for people's, uh, I mean, for people perhaps, but the argument which says, if you read the Gospels, you'll find that there's, you know, a very plausible version of events which says Jesus was just a, you know, compelling right. um, prophet, teacher, but not never really claimed to be God. I actually find that um, quite uncompelling. So, so give me, yeah, so... so if the Gospels are our best um, historical access to to Jesus, which even sceptical scholars um, w- would often acknowledge, if Jesus isn't God, then we actually we can't hold on to pieces of Jesus at that point. I,
0: I agree. Like 100%. Jesus is,
1: it's it's all gone.
0: <laughs> um, I agree. It's it's uh, it's. I think it really is all or nothing with the Gospel yeah. accounts of Jesus.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, and even when it comes to the question of exclusivity, it was fascinating. A, a few weeks ago, we were. Um, looking at this this passage, I think in Matthew 7, but you can tell, it's right at the end of the Sermon on the map. That's the tail end of Matthew 7. I get my chapters very squiffy. No, you got
0: it, Matthew 7.
1: So Matthew 7, where Jesus says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I, I could put that on a yard sign in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live, and my non-believing friends would like give that a big yeah. thumbs up. But then right after that, Jesus says one of his most unpopular things, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We we can't separate out Jesus's popular and unpopular teachings.
0: I agree. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's tempting is, uh, and this is without diving too into the weeds of some of the more complex conversations behind it, though maybe one day we'll get there. Um, I do think that we, we feel about the testimony about Jesus in the Gospels that we can just kind of take and leave what we want. And this mm-hmm. isn't unique to uh, skeptical minds approaching Scripture. I mean, Christians do this all the time with the parts of the Gospel that, co- that are congruent with what we want mm-hmm. to think about ourselves. Uh, and then we leave on the table the stuff that's a little bit more like sandpaper, um, so but I do think that one of the things that's very and this, that's a great passage to point to uh, that's clear is that Jesus uh, is not he, he he is not divisible. You you cannot just be like I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's all mm. or nothing with him, mm. and I think that's actually a good thing. You know, probably the number mm. one getting to kind of where I want us to go here. When I engage with non-Christian friends and neighbors. I would say that the one thing they feel most offended by when you really get to what the Bible says about Jesus is around his exclusivity. Yeah. Around like... Like, they, again, like your truth, my truth, they're fine if I want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father, the true God, for salvation and for flourishing except through Christ Jesus. They're fine if I believe that. But mm-hmm. The moment I say, no, it's actually true regardless of belief, and it's true for everyone, everywhere, throughout all time. Now they're going, whoa, hold on. Like, now we've jumped the shark in their mind. But I actually think the exclusivity of Jesus is one of the best parts of the message because Jesus' exclusivity as the way to God is coupled with a radical inclusivity regarding Mm -hmm. who can Mm -hmm. come to Mm -hmm. God. Because So the the reality is, is Jesus is saying, I am the only way to God, but... Anyone who comes through me will be welcomed into fellowship with God. So there's a radical inclusivity that's attached Mm -hmm. to the radical exclusivity. So when I talk with folks, I'll often tell people, listen, Jesus is making a radically exclusive claim that initially is going to shock you. But that radical exclusive claim is the foundation for a radically inclusive invitation which is that Mm -hmm. because he's the only way to God, he's also extending an invitation to say, you don't have to try to jump over the fences. You don't have to go try to find another door. I am the door. I am the only way to God. And all who come through me will enter into fellowship with God, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your background, regardless of what your language is, regardless of your culture, your ethnicity, regardless of how much money or how little money you have, regardless of your sin and how it's manifested in your life in the past. If you come through Jesus Christ by grace through faith, then you can come to God in mm-hmm. salvation.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: mm-hmm. radically inclusive.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that's been really striking to me as I've, read through the gospels sort of again and again for writing about them is the fact that you can only come to jesus basically flat on your face that like you can
0: mm-hmm.
1: you can come with need and we see people in the gospels who come with a, a sort of physical need for healing for themselves or for, for somebody they love we see people come because they're deeply aware of their own sinfulness and they they need jesus for that reason You 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 come to jesus with Whatever's prompting you, you come with your need and you sort of fall down on your knees in front of him. Those are the people Jesus lifts up. Yeah. If you come to Jesus like the scribes and Pharisees tend to do in the gospels, where you basically are there to to critique and to to question and to be like, oh, I'm not not, you know, not very impressed with what you're you're doing actually. You're not living up to my standards, Jesus. Um, those people just miss who Jesus is and he have they just don't get him. Like both, mm. both sort of literally and uh, and sort of figuratively, they they can't see who Jesus is, and I love that moment when he's being critiqued by the the Pharisees for spending his time eating and drinking with sinners, and he's like, "Oh, don't worry, it's it's not the the healthy you need the doctor, but the sick. It's I've only I haven't come to for the righteous people, but for for sinners." And yeah. and you sort of feel the feel the weight of Jesus's statement, where they may be thinking, "Well, that's okay. I'm righteous people don't need you." In in fact. He's only here for the sinners. And until we recognize that we are the sinners, we're not going to get him. We're not yeah. going to be able to access him.
0: So I think Christians have room for confidence. Um, in terms of what we believe about Jesus. But when we're asked questions about why we believe what we believe mm-hmm. about Jesus, questions of a, of epistemology, questions of mm-hmm. knowledge, questions mm-hmm. of how we know what we know, that's the question of epistemology, knowledge. What is knowledge? How do we know what we know? Mm-hmm. And in a couple episodes back, we, we kind of answered this question broadly. How do we know what we know? How do we know anything? So we kind of dove into this, but how do we know we're not wrong about Jesus? Mm. How do we know that we're not wrong about something as central, fundamental, and catalytic as Jesus Christ is the Son Mm -hmm. of God, Mm -hmm. Creator, Lord, Savior?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think a super helpful place to go on that is to look at whether the four New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are giving us reliable eyewitness testimony about who Jesus is. Um. Uh, it was interesting a few minutes ago you were talking about the, the best versions of opposing arguments and how we should always you know, look to articulate and engage with those rather than just the sort of straw man that we want to knock down. I think that's true. I think it's also important that we engage with the most powerful rhetorical moves of opposing arguments or the most um, frequently used metaphors. Yep. And one that I think often is used to undermine people's confidence in the Gospels, if they're already Christians, or to um, you know reassure people they don't have to take the Gospel seriously if they're not, is the um, metaphor of the the telephone game, uh, yeah. where people say, you know how in the telephone game, you know one kid whispers a message to the next kid, and the next miss- kid whispers the ne- message to the third kid, and you kind of go along along the line, and then the kid at the end of the circle says out loud what they heard, and it was laughably different from what the first right. kid was told. And you know, a number of um skeptical scholars and, and sort of public intellectuals have have used that as a um comparison for how we've got the the New Testament gospels. That, you know, maybe somebody saw or heard a thing and then they passed it on to somebody else, and that was passed on to somebody else, um, and we've ended up with this very kind of garbled version. Right. And I've I've heard it applied both to the gap between, you know, when Jesus was um teaching and Um, performing miracles and when the Gospels were written down. And also I've heard it applied to um, the the manuscript evidence we have for the Gospels to know that we've got the access to the original text that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote. And and it's super compelling. Like it's it's a super powerful metaphor um, because Mm -hmm. we've all seen a message get corrupted like that. But it's actually a really poor analogy to how the Gospels came about um, when we think about the the testimony of um the people who the the many people you know so we've got not just his 12 appointed apostles um who you know traveled around with jesus memorizing his sayings as a good jewish disciple of a rabbi would do but also the the many other um informal disciples he had including a number of women um who are cited by the gospel authors as eyewitnesses of jesus's life death burial resurrection the Gospels are written well within the lifetimes of those first eyewitnesses. Right. And as far as we can tell from a, you know, historical perspective, looking at, at the ways that biographies were were written at that time, the gospel authors are very much intentionally pointing to eyewitnesses as they as they right. write their their texts for us. So it, it's not that, you know, one person heard a story about Jesus and passed it on to somebody else, he passed it on to somebody else, and eventually that person wrote it down. Actually, no, of the probably hundreds of people who heard the original teaching or saw the original miracle. There were then, um, you know, let's say dozens of yep. eyewitnesses who were kind of carrying that memory forward. Yep. And then it was, it was written down well within the lifetime of, of those folks whose whose full-time job was tra- traveling around with Jesus and, and observing what he did. Right. And, and then after his death and resurrection, their job was going around and telling others about it. So it's like, if I said to you, you know, Hey, Kyle, um, it's not like if I said, like, do you remember what you have a breakfast? You know, this time ten years ago, or even last week, you probably got no idea. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, Carl, remember that conversation that changed your life when you were twenty? Right. Um, yep. Give me a summary of it now. I want to write it down. Yeah. Like, of course you remember.
0: For sure. And I think that um, not only is that a very significant point about the credibility of the sources of knowledge around who Jesus is, I think it's also important to remember one of the things I've uh, found people is kind of the point underneath your point, which is helping people, Christians or skeptics, understand how ancient history worked. Mm. Like how ancient history as a genre functioned because I think we often think of historical veracity as being uh, purely contained to like uh, the modern period. Like we could only really have kind of truthfulness around what happened historically from our vantage point. And yet, I don't know if you follow, uh, if if you read biographies or you could read 10 biographies about... Winston Churchill. Lord knows there's probably 10,000 of them. (laughs) Uh, But you could read 10 biographies about Winston Churchill, and there's going to be consensus on Mm -hmm. his (laughs) existence— Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's going to be consensus on uh, probably the day he was born. There are going to be consensus on the day he died. There are going to be consensus on the text, the very specific text of speech that he might have used for speeches in the House of Parliament. There's going to be consensus Mm -hmm. on a lot, but there's also going to be interpretation. Mm -hmm. I think modern people, specifically in the global West, are often thinking about history as like interpretation free. History is just like the detached, plain accounting of factual, biographical, data-driven information. But that's not how history worked in the ancient period. It's not how history works now. I think you could make a compelling case that one of the most formative pieces of historical work in the last 10 years at a popular level is a musical – Mm-hmm. <laughs> where where founding fathers rap um, yeah. and where founding fathers have rap battles in the Oval Office. Nobody watches that and goes, yeah, of course, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had a rap battle in the Oval Office to discuss this pressing issue. Do you understand that history is told narratively in a way that can still be true and -hmm. yet may not accord with what you understand as this a very like linear – uh, uh data driven approach to the historical record. and and Rebecca mentioned a few things there. if I if you were like really wanting to explore that, I would point you to Richard Bochham's work on mm. the Gospels as eyewitness so testimony. Much. It oh, is a, it's a, it's far more accessible than it looks. Like when you're going to look at the book on Amazon <laughs> or wherever you're going to buy it, you're going to go, "This isn't for me." It's far more. He's a great writer. He's a great thinker. And it was that book, "The Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony," that helped me kind of reconsider and reevaluate how I thought about mm. the Gospels as a genre uh, and as a reliable source. It's funny
1: though. You brought up the the Hamilton analogy, and uh, my twelve year old right now is obsessed with Hamilton. Like she absolutely, she listens to the music all the time. And she just recently read an 800 page Hamilton biography. Did I already tell you this?
0: No, I don't think you did. So,
1: so she is deep into Hamilton's life. How old is she? She's just turned 12.
0: And she read the, she read the Ron Chernow 800 page biography on Hamilton? She,
1: indeed, indeed. (laughs) She was totally into it. And she kept coming to me as she was reading this book. She kept coming to me and saying, mom, um, Hamilton is a much worse guy than he seems like he is in the musical. Like the more <laughs> yeah. I understand the details of his life, the <laughs> right. less impressed I am with this. She's like, he's basically not a good guy at all. Like Eliza right. is legit a good person. And like yeah. Hamilton, really not. I hate to sure. break everybody's hearts if you haven't read the eight800 page biography. Yeah. And I, I think the experience that she went through is precisely the opposite of the experience that you will go through if you sit down and read the gospels. Agreed. Because... If Hamilton is kind of like the highlights reel, you know, Hamilton the musical is sort of like the highlights reel of Hamilton's life with basically the best possible gloss on him. <laughs> and, you know, oh, well, yeah, he had an affair, but like it was really hard, you know, all sure. the things that it's, it's very much a presenting Hamilton as a hero yep. and glossing over things that that won't seem so heroic um, but as you dig more into the details, you find him less and less attractive. I think the Gospels happen the opposite way around. But if people just have a sort of general idea of Jesus from like Sunday school one day or you know picked up in, in the ether of, of Christian culture around them, the, the more you sit down and actually read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the more compelling
0: he's going to be. Yes, I agree with that 100%. We've been talking about believing, knowing Jesus— being confident in 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 having true knowledge about Jesus. But I think it's important that we just maybe pan out for a second to go, well, what really is essential to believe about Jesus? Because we know that there are things that are often associated with Jesus that are either Mm -hmm. uh, not true or they're not essential. Let me give you an example of a not true thing about Jesus. Like if you grew up in America in uh, the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and you saw a picture of Jesus. Now we've gotten a lot better about this in the last 20 and hats off to publishers for correcting the record. But if you were engaging with Christian resources that visually depicted Jesus in America in the last half of the 20th century, you saw Jesus as white, uh, mm. Almost
1: not just white, but like blonde hair and blue yes. eyes, kind of like that's hyper white, yes.
0: <laughs> right? Hyper white, yes. That's not true. Obviously, uh, we know that there's simply no way that that would have been a is uh, a, de- uh, a clear depiction of Jesus. So that's a not true thing that even in our collective imagination, is often associated in the global West with Jesus. But what about something that's not essential that's often associated? Maybe meaning that it's true, but it's often treated as an essential Mm. um, when it may not be. Um, I think one of the things that's often treated as an essential that probably shouldn't be is Jesus's views about... Um, or what we might project upon Jesus in terms of his views around something like matters of secondary doctrine, creation of the world, for example. Mm. Um, I've heard people say before, well, Jesus references uh, the creation in a way that accords with a seven-day literal creationist view. Ipso facto, if Jesus believed it, I should believe it too. Mm -hmm. Well, I I would say – I. I think it's true that Jesus seems to look back on it and refer to creation in a way that's often congruent with seven day creationism. But I don't think that the context around Jesus's references to that are primarily making an argument that would go against, uh, uh, kind of, a uh, alternative views of the creation yeah. record, young earth or old earth. So that could be, it very well could be true. It's just not an essential belief. Somebody could believe it, all the essentials about who Jesus Christ claimed to be, what he claimed to do or, and what he did. Um, and not believe uh, something that it appears that Jesus might have believed or, or didn't believe or maybe could be projected upon. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think that's helpful, and not that this is an episode on science, but it seems to me that people sometimes smush together the absolutely vital Christian belief that there is one God who made the heavens and the earth and every everything and everyone Um you know from from nothing originally and is entirely in charge of our, our creation from beginning. like that that seems to me to be a, a a belief that is fundamental to christianity and not a sort of nice to have yep. how god created seems to me to be you know important interesting but actually not fundamental to our understanding of the scriptures or of of who jesus is Yep. so I'm open to people, you know, having different views and debating all day long as Christians have done since at least the fourth century, you know, yes. um, exactly, exactly how God uh, created us. The, the question of whether God created us is absolutely first order, non-negotiable yeah, question of how seems to me to be you know, very much um, one that it's, it's useful to have conversation around and that we shouldn't, you know, be breaking fellowship with people who, who take a different view.
0: Yeah. And so when we think about essentials to believe about Jesus, what's the true knowledge that we're seeking? Well, the church has historically said, and we think that it's the distillation of the witness of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. Two natures, uh, one person, fully God, fully man, uh, that he lived a perfect life, uh, meaning he did not sin, he did not commit evil, Mm -hmm. he was not marred in any way by unrighteousness, either in condition or in action. And that he died a substitutionary death to accomplish the forgiveness of sins, to make atonement on behalf of man with God. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He then uh, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's kind of like Mm -hmm. those are the essentials of who Jesus is, two natures, one person, what's called the hypostatic union, um, and that he lived a sinless life, and he died a a representational or a substitutionary death for the forgiveness of sins. He rose again. He's not dead any longer, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and he rose again in an embodied way. Um, The early church was very concerned about true belief about Jesus. Many of the early councils are organized around questions about who Jesus is, who Jesus was, who the church would proclaim and worship him to be. Uh, You think about Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon in particular, two of the earliest uh, councils that developed creeds. Those creeds have been treated through the history of the church as the received belief and confession of global and historic Christianity, meaning I might not have, um, maybe me and my Roman Catholic neighbor would have a disagreement over some element of the doctrine of salvation, but me and my Roman Catholic neighbor share essentially the same view, provided that they uh, uh, are uh, cognizant of their faith, Mm -hmm. like I am cognizant of my faith and vice versa we share functionally the same view of who Jesus is, at mm-hmm. least from a doctrinal confessional standpoint, that we both believe yeah. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, two natures, one person. You can find African Christians and Asian Christians and Central European Christians and South American Christians. And our unity, even though maybe some of our practices might be different, the language we use in worship might be different, our worship style, our preferences might be different. Maybe some of we, we hold some beliefs in secondary or tertiary relationships that would be different different from one another, but the thing that unites Christians together is our belief in who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in the Son of God, mm-hmm, Jesus mm-hmm, Christ, mm-hmm, the second yeah. person that God had. That's kind of the glue of the Christian faith, and that's one of the reasons why having a degree of confidence and true knowledge around the question of Jesus is absolutely fundamental and yeah, integral yeah. to the Christian faith lived and practiced
1: yeah, and it's interesting. I think there are some areas of of belief when it comes to Jesus that people will see as like mm, maybe this is a, a, a second order. Doesn't matter if you really believe that or not. You know, one that comes to mind is like, was Jesus really conceived by a virgin? Yeah. Like, was was he was he actually born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit? Like, is that something that's like essential for us to believe as Christians? And it seems to me that in fact it is precisely because of what you were just explaining about who like Jesus's divine nature. Yeah. Um, that, that God actually um, did something truly miraculous <laughs> um, yeah. in Jesus's conception. And it, it's, it's far and beyond actually any, um, you know, just regular common or garden miracle that we see in the gospels of, you know, maybe Jesus um, healing a blind person or, or helping, like enabling somebody who couldn't walk to walk. This right. is the incomprehensible miracle of the God of all the universe taking on human flesh. I mean, it's like it bl- blows our. It should blow our minds today, even though we're kind of familiar with the idea. It should like be truly yeah. mind blowing to us. But it's even more mind blowing to you know poor Mary, <laughs> well, Not poor Mary. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like, but but like think think about Jesus's mother Mary, who is living as a, a faithful Jew. Um, under uh, Roman dominion, you know, the Jews at that time living under under the the boot of the Roman Empire, so under pagan overlords, right. clinging on to their completely bizarre belief that there is only one God who made the heavens and the earth and everyone in it, contrary to all their pagan neighbours, contrary to their Roman overlords. And then it being revealed to her that in fact this one true God was going to have a son who was also her child. I mean, like the... Uh, the the wildness of that um, news for a a faithful first century Jew is hard for us even to get our our minds around because sure there were stories told of the pagan gods um, impregnating human women and like, you know, having demigods here and there. But the God of the Bible was nothing like them. This was a totally different, like this, this is the utterly transcendent creator God we're talking about here. And I can only imagine what sort of went through Mary's mind as she was visited by this angel. But, but then, you know, when people say, well, yeah, I mean, the the, the idea that Jesus was um, born of a virgin and didn't have a, you know, human father, is like, well, you know, maybe that's a sort of nice to have rather than an essential belief. Like, actually, I, I think it's just intrinsically connected to our understanding of who Jesus is as the, the very son of God.
0: Yeah. No, yes. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I remember a number of years ago, there was a, this, I say a number of years ago, I feel old now <laughs> because of it, it's way, it was a lot of years ago, but the book, uh, oh, I, I won't mention the name of the book, but a book came out by a, a, a Christian pastor and writer who, who basically called into question the, the necessity of the virgin birth. And I does feel a little bit to me like, um, one of the things that I often uh, feels like we're kind of uh, trying to take away with one hand what we're b- trying to build with the other is that there are often times where global Western modern folks will kind of like treat the, the culture – of uh, the culture, ancient culture, as like with a pat on the head. Oh well, like they couldn't mm-hmm. possibly have known better. Like mm-hmm. how sweet, how 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 sweet and how childish were they? You know, like what Lewis talked about, chronological snobbery, where we look yeah. back and we're like, well, of course, these desert nomads, these peasants in the backwaters of the world, couldn't possibly have considered these things. And I often wonder if we just know how arrogant. And how truly racist and classist that that approach to historical reflection is Um, because it does feel – like we're very willing when it comes to the claims of religion broadly and Christianity specifically to look back on the ancient cultures that were the crucible of their formation, or at least the circumstances of their narrative, the context where they were uh, and to kind of pat them on the head. It's like, well, we've certainly progressed beyond these simpletons. Mm -hmm. And uh, often case, I don't think you have to look too hard at ancient cultures to realize that in many ways, they were more sophisticated in reflection than we often are. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, uh, we we, we uh, ourselves are not nearly as advanced and as wise as we often take ourselves to be. Yeah. And I think many objections around Jesus and the historicity, the the, the the veracity, the truthfulness of his claims, the objections to those often scan and read to me, as modern enlightened people, quote unquote, mm. looking back on a culture that is not their own and treating it in a way that they would never do so if the claims of religion weren't the main contested claims they were dialoguing about. They would never they would never do that. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think that's true. I think to just sort of put a little bit of a twist in that, though, one of the uh, objections or critiques of the Gospels that um, I find almost amusing is the idea that... The Gospels were um, somehow sort of massaged by the early Christian leaders right. um, for political reasons. That they were, you know, propaganda. Um, you know, the best the best angle was was presented, and we can't right. really trust them because, you know, of course, we know people in power um, change the narrative all the time. It's also easy to read the Gospels and think, "Gosh, the the first disciples, especially the you know chosen apostles of Jesus, the the twelve Jewish men who would hand selected." they seem so foolish. It's so embarrassing. It's like embarrassing how, you know, Jesus will predict his death and they start arguing about who's the greatest. Yep. Um, after the resurrection, the women come back to them and tell them that they've, they've seen Jesus's empty tomb. And, and the male disciples, it seemed to them an idle tale and They wouldn't believe it. You know, as Luke says, Right. So if there was an airbrushing being done, whoever was airbrushing should have been fired. Like they did an incredibly bad job. Oh, for sure. Um, because it, it is, it, it's, it's an embarrassing portrayal of the people who went on to be the the most you know powerful leaders in in the early church and, and to me that is one of the the signs of authenticity in the gospels yeah, is um yes, they point a beautiful spotlight on Jesus, but they actually throw shade on his twelve apostles like again and again and and I can only imagine that they allowed that you know peter and and the other guys kind of allowed that to stand because it was truly what happened. Yeah. Um, And they were more interested in the spotlight on Jesus than in their own, um, you know, shiny reputation. Yeah,
0: yes, I think that's really well said. And there are so many rejoinders and faithful responses some of the questions and objections. I mean, that's a great one right there that you often hear. I think another one is, uh, you know, when we think about, you'll, you'll hear people say, well, you know, Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, there were there were political machinations to make sure that, uh, that this particular view of Jesus became the authoritative view, even though it wasn't the biblical picture. It wasn't the, the picture of who Jesus Christ, the moral teacher, Jewish rabbi was. And yet... The the, defi- the those views typically or that that skepticism is so unfounded. Uh, I don't know if you know much about the imperial cult of Rome. The one thing that the Caesars didn't want was to codify any competition to their own lordship. So for uh, a Roman ruler to be like, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, uh, was not something that was going to codify power for him. It was something that was going to minimize his political Mm. power, uh, maybe even jeopardize it, as we see throughout the history of the church. So it is surprising, I think, that sometimes the skepticisms that are treated most seriously are the ones that probably should have the least amount of stock attached to them. And we're going to get into these in the seasons ahead. You know, I think one of the things that'd be good to just as we land the plane here, we've gone far and above the time I thought we would. Uh, how do we constantly we talking about Jesus? Uh, well, yeah, uh, evidently. Um, I guess that's a good thing. If you're going to get, st- if you're going to go overboard on one thing, this is probably the one to go <laughs> overboard on. Uh, let me ask you this, Rebecca, how do we walk confidently in the way of Jesus uh, in a way that's faithful and persuasive and humble. You and I both have like people in our lives who we love, mm. Mm. who do not think that Jesus is who we think Jesus is. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: we don't spend all our time like it's not like we're constantly texting them, you know, articles like you know, ten ways you know you can know that Jesus actually rose again from the dead. You know, we have those conversations when they arise. We initiate them some of the time when it's appropriate, but we're not constantly just like firebombing our friends and neighbors with like, here's, you know, 25 defeater arguments for uh, the, the truthfulness of Jesus, you know. Um, how, how do we do this in a way that's humble, faithful, and persuasive? Maintain the integrity of our convictions about what we believe about Jesus with a way that's inviting and winsome. How do we do that?
1: I think if Jesus is truly central to our lives, and I feel like that's, that's a daily battle for me, to keep Jesus truly central to my life because it's, it's strange. It's almost like there's a sort of spiritual... Um, opposition to that happening in my life it's it's almost like there's somebody out there who's who's wanting Jesus not to be central to my life I can't imagine you know who that could be um if Jesus really is central to to how we're thinking and how we're living and if we are having meaningful conversations about things that matter with our friends then Jesus is naturally going to come into those conversations um, if, if we are regularly part of, of Christian community, um, as we go to church on Sundays, as we meet with, um, fellow believers in the week, you know, we, for example, host a community group at our house every Tuesday evening. And so, you know, it just comes up in conversation with my non-believing friends. What were you doing last night? Oh, we had a community group. We talk about Matthew's gospel and pray for each other. Like to, to, there are, there are ways that if, if Jesus is, is central to our, our daily rhythms and how we think about the, questions and challenges that come our way in life. Um, and if we're pursuing real meaningful close relationships with with non-believing friends and not just keeping everything at the surface level of, oh, isn't it hot today in Boston? <laughs> um, which, by the way, it is very hot today in Boston. Um, then I, I think those those conversations are going to come up. And if we can be introducing our, our non-Christian friends to um, friends who are Christians who may they may have a connection with, that could be just a super helpful way of of having different angles on Jesus um, coming into their life. You know, if somebody who um, maybe comes has a totally different upbringing to us or a different life um, experience or a different racial heritage or a different um, age coming and also being a a witness to Jesus in their lives, that picture is going to start to be built by um, a group of people around a friend of ours. So I think, yeah, inviting people into into our lives, both our own just individual lives and also at the
0: life of our communities. I think that's exactly right. That's a good place for us to land the plane today. Hey, listen, thank you for tuning in and for listening to us as we ask these questions. If you want to ask a question, you can leave a review of Confronting Christianity on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to take that question into consideration. You can find Confronting Christianity on Instagram and Twitter. Check out Rebecca's recently released books. Whether you're looking looking for Jesus Through the Eyes of Women or Confronting Jesus, you should check them out if you're interested in exploring who Jesus is. Is more. Uh, we did recommend Richard Bockham's The Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. Would strongly encourage you to check that out as well. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace.